if you are saved today, that song ought to be your testimony. Amen. 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 You look dead this morning, right? I'm telling you, uh, that song there, whew, can't hardly take it. Uh, I feel like I'm in a rapture every time I hear it. All right. Now, let me get my bearings together. You remember Paul was saved on the road to Damascus. If you remember, he was a Christ hater. He was a Christian hater. He would have been equal to any Ayatollah or world terrorist that you could possibly imagine today. Because he had it in his mind to kill all Christians. But here in Acts 13, you get the privilege of hearing his first sermon. Isn't that amazing? You know, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was, uh, in the law to himself, blameless. And so, Paul, you know, when he trusted Christ that moment, or when he was blinded on the road to Damascus, he had the covenant curse given to him from Deuteronomy, meaning that for three days he was blind, groping around at midday and could not see. Do you think Paul thought about Abraham? Do you think he thought a little bit about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? you think he thought a little bit about God giving the promise to the patriarchs and then moving to the Exodus, taking God's people out of Egypt, and then the giving of the judges? First having the promised land and then the judges that were raised up and and then the people were asking for a king. And, and then you have David coming forward. And then, of course, you have Jesus as the seed and offspring in fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Now, Paul was an Old Testament scholar. Do you think he put that together in those three days that he was blind? I think he did because that's his first sermon. Right? He's going to track for you, which Luke acts, you know that's one volume, Luke Acts uh, has, as its core, a real straight, pointed out, pointed narrative on the fact that not only just history was salvation history, but all of world history in general is salvation history. The fact that God is working in all of history to accomplish His purposes. You remember, He used pagan kings to get His will accomplished. God can do what He wants to do to get it accomplished. So, one of the features that's, that we've noticed throughout the book of Acts is that, that Luke is concerned about history and how that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of redemptive history. Not only that, but as you read this particular text, and as we've studied thus far, you're going to learn that we've learned that the content of the gospel is super important. In our world today, we need to think about this. In our pluralistic society where people think that all roads lead to heaven, Luke is dogmatic on the fact that only one road leads to heaven. Period. And that's the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. 
That is the absolute only way to heaven. And I would add to that, not only is he the only way to heaven, but the gospel that he accomplished is the only way to heaven. It's the good news accomplished through his perfect life, of his incarnation, perfect life of obedience, death on a cross to, in order to pay a debt that you owed, in order to give you a righteousness that you did not deserve. That's true, genuine salvation. So Luke is going to talk about, again, the important content of the gospel as Paul preaches his first sermon. So without, without any delay, let's read this next magnificent text of Scripture. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. Remember, the church of Antioch is a predominant Gentile church. It's the very first international church. I can't overemphasize how important Acts 13 is to the scope of redemptive history. How that God would plant, would, would send out, remember the story? Two, missionary, two or three missionaries, and they don't even give us their names. But they began to see that the gospel should move forward past just the Jews. So God plants a brand new church in Antioch, and this church goes international the very first church to go international over a body of water to take the gospel to the nations. I can't overemphasize how important this is in the scope of redemptive history. So when you get to verse 13, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, for a little while, right? Before you get to a few verses, he's going to desert them. But you've got this small missionary band that's expanding and moving on. Notice the text, verse 13. Now Paul... And his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. A little bit of geographical information. From Cyprus to Perga would have been 180 miles. They're going to move from Perga north to internal to, to the inward part of Asia Minor, which is 100 miles north. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. That's your moving from uh, Perga to Antioch of Pisidia is north, and that would have been a hundred miles. But notice this. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, a visiting preacher. How about that? A visiting preacher is in the synagogue. And they want someone to speak. And so Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, said, Now here's his sermon. It's going to be in three parts, but here's the beginning. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And having destroying, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish. Kish. 
a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Well, that's a pretty good introduction to a first sermon, right? With the intent of Paul moving from all the way from God choosing his people and finding its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a good possibility that John Mark belonged to Mary. Remember, Mary probably had the home where you had the Passover and perhaps Pentecost. John Mark is Barnabas' cousin. He's been on this missionary journey, and it's probably good that I note this for you because it's coming back, and then I'm going to dive into the sermon. But notice the text. For some reason, John Mark decides to go home. He leaves, according to the passage, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Was he homesick? Was it a difficult missionary journey? I mean, some of us have gone to, since we've been here, to Mexico and Guatemala, and I've gone to little places that are a little more difficult to minister in with how you live and capacity and the things you do. And perhaps it was just that John Mark looked at that journey from Perga up to Pisidian Antioch and thought, you know what? This is a 3,500-foot elevation change. And it was. It was 3,500 feet from Perga up to Pisidian Antioch. Maybe he said, mm, I'm not doing it. I'm out. That's 100 miles. It's well documented that the road to Pisidia Antioch is very difficult. Robbers all the way during this time frame. You could lose your life on it. Perhaps Mark just thought this is more than I can take. No one knows the reason. But here's what we find out in Acts 15. Paul's not impressed. Paul has really been out of shape about this. It's going to cause a sharp contention with Barnabas, and they're going to split together. One commentator may be on when he explains John Mark, it could very well be that he didn't like the management change. Y'all know where I'm headed? Because I told you last week up to this point, Paul is always called Saul, and he's always mentioned last. Now he's going to be called Paul, and he's going to always be mentioned first. And perhaps this John Mark thought, mm, Uncle Barnabas, he may have called him, I don't really like it because Barnabas is not the leader anymore, but it's Paul. This very well could be the case. Anytime there's a management change and things are different uh, people began to think about their space and their uh, something's in jeopardy or the, the the normalcy is gone from the picture and maybe that's why John Mark is upset but a little later Barnabas is going to say I want John Mark to come back and Paul's going to say not going to happen not at this point but there's a wonderful end to the story when Paul is in prison and he says bring to me John Mark for he is now useful for the ministry. It all works out great 
in the end, but there's some difficulty. And I'm reminded of something. These were not plastic saints. You know, sometimes we read the Word of God and we think, well, they just had it all together and they were plastic saints and everybody looked the same. Mm, not in the least bit. Don't y'all think those folks had disagreements? Right? They had disagreements. They had difficulty. And missionary work, Brother Jim, is not easy. Right? When you're working with people and you're traveling all around and you're going from city to city, we don't know exactly what happened, but the fact is there's difficulty. Again, Pisidian Antioch, you may say, well, I thought we already talked about Antioch. Well, some scholars say there were as many as 12 cities that perhaps were called Antioch in the Greco-Roman world. Why? Because their hero was Antiochus Epiphanes. Y'all know that guy? Put the sow on the altar. Uh, he was a heretic and put the, put the pig on the altar in the temple. So the Jews didn't think too kindly of Antiochus Epiphanes. So they're named, Antioch was named after Antiochus Epiphanes. Here is Paul, and he does nothing willy-nilly. Why does he go to Pisidian of Antioch? Again, this was a strategic missionary move when he goes to this particular place. He thought about trade, he thought about commerce, he thought about culture, he thought about how can I get the most bang for putting Christ Jesus forth in this community so that we can get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so he goes to another major city and he begins to preach the gospel. It would be like Paul coming to America, to the U.S. What do you think he would head first? D.C.? San Francisco? I mean, strategy. He went where it was ripe where the fields were white unto the harvest. And he prayed that the Lord of the harvest would thrust forth those. And he went to places with a strategic position. Now he's going into the synagogue. You see the text? What have we learned about the synagogue? He went there as a missionary strategy. Why? Because it would have been an enculturated place. You had Jews full with, with Abraham's blood coursing through their veins. You had proselytes who had gone all the way to circumcision to be a Jew, however, or true Israelite, however, they still were looked on from the outside because they didn't have Abraham's blood. And then you had God-fearers. Those were the ones who had come to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, minus circumcision. And they were in there, Gentiles. And Paul goes into this place strategically to preach the Word. And what would have taken place in the synagogue? The Shema would have been recited every single time that you walked in to the synagogue. That's how the service started, much like we had a service today. And they would be quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And after the two readings, they were, after this there would be two readings. From the Pentateuch, which is what? First five books of the Bible. I'm glad David got that right, missionary, uh, music guy. Right? First five books of the Bible, and then they would read from uh, a prophet. Most believe that they read Deuteronomy 1, which would have been the second giving of the law, and or an understanding of Deuteronomic law, and Isaiah chapter 1. Now track with me, you're going to miss it. Here is Paul coming into a synagogue where the Shema, Behold, our God is one. And here is Paul coming in to a synagogue where... 
Deuteronomy 1 would have been read, perhaps, and Isaiah chapter 1. And maybe Paul has on a Tarsian rabbi robe. I don't know what it is that gives him away. Maybe he had a rabbinic robe on. But here he is visiting the synagogue, and they perhaps send him a little note on a sticky note, right? And send it over there to the brethren. Does any of you have a word of exhortation? And we don't have to guess which one's going to preach, right? And, of course, uh, the, the exact wording here is uh, word of encouragement for the people. The only other time that's used, it's used in the book of Hebrews. Although I have written briefly this word of exhortation. And from that, many people believe that Hebrews was a compilation of sermons that were preached in the synagogue. Hmm. Later on as believers. I could definitely see that in the book of Hebrews. But with a gesture. I wonder what kind of gesture Paul made with his hand. I mean, it's something you think about. You know, both hands. But gesturing with his hand, the Bible says that he addresses them, men of Israel and you who fear God. In other words, those who's you Jewish people, you've got Abraham's blood coursing through your veins. You've got a group in there that uh, were seeking God, Yahweh God, that were proselytes. And then uh, you've got believers who had studied the Torah. They understood the law. They thought about those things. And then 17 through 25, Paul is going to track through the history of Israel. Number one theme is that the grace of God pursued them when they were recalcitrant, rebellious people. Just like you and me. God is the one pursuing. And then when you get to chapter, when you get to 26 through 37, isn't God wonderful and great to give us this particular passage during Easter? You might as well say amen. Because I am so thankful that in our preaching through Acts, we get to death and fulfillment in the resurrection, uh, fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to spend two or three weeks on that section, verses 26 through 37, leading us up to Easter Sunday morning. And then finally, with superb application, Paul in verses 38 through 41 is going to end his sermon by saying, listen, for all of you who would turn to Christ and get forgiveness of sin and be justified, you have life everlasting. But there's also a warning for those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord. So he gives great blessing for those who trust Christ, the very one that fulfilled the scriptures that he preaches on, his first sermon. And then for those who reject Jesus Christ, there's appropriate gospel warnings. Let us not forget that in our day, that there, are, there needs to be preached appropriate gospel warnings. That means to not trust Jesus Christ as Lord in this lifetime is to spend eternity in hell. That's not popular, but that's Bible. And we're going to see that at the end of Paul's application. All right, one point today. Can y'all believe that? God's grace is displayed to the Old Testament Israel through redemptive history. And Paul is going to survey the Old Testament. And there's one main character in this sermon. It's not Abraham. It's not Moses. It's not David. It's God. God is the main character in redemptive history. Nine times, God is going to be the subject of what He is doing for the people 
in just verses 17 through 25. Folks, think about this. God is the initiator of your salvation. God, there ought to be a few amens. God initiated your salvation. If you're saved today, it's because God initiated it in order to save you. And so here he's the initiator nine times. And the emphasis is not on the people, but on the God who is laboring to fulfill his promise through a Savior. Verse 17, one short verse, he deals with the patriarchs and the exodus. He begins with divine election of a people. I mean, why did God choose Israel? Why not the Hittites, the Persasites, and all the otherites? Right? Why does he put his love on Israel? Can anybody answer that question? I don't know. I'm not. I think the Bible tells us why God loved and chose Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Does that not strike y'all like it does me? Why is it of all the peoples on the face of the earth, God would start with Israel? Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. Why does God love and choose? Because God loves and chooses. That's exactly what the text tells us. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So initially, he says to them, it was God that came down and chose Abraham. Folks, do you know that Abraham was a moon worshiper? I mean, this is not a Baptist saint living out in Terah, under his father Terah. Here's a man who was a moon worshiper. He was a pagan among pagans. And the God of eternity comes down to him and speaks to his heart. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God. Had nothing to do with works, right? Paul's going to make that clearly clear in Galatians and in Romans. That Abraham believed God and it was given to his account righteousness. And so that's how God starts the whole thing. He chooses a moon worshiper, a pagan. He reaches down into the darkness of Abraham's heart and he intercepts a man. He snatches his heart with the truth of his personhood. And out of free and sovereign grace, he chose one man, Abraham. Amazing. Then he called Abraham to lead an entire nation. He moves from election to multiplication of people. Y'all tracking with me? Well, what was this? It was in keeping to the promise of Abraham. That I'm going to bless you and make you multiply. And so that's exactly what happens. Because of a famine, you remember Joseph goes down to Egypt. God's people end up in Egypt. And them rascals multiply. You remember the handmaidens for the Egyptians? Man, these women, they just have babies like rabbits. And we can't keep up with all of them. And God multiplied them. Of course, they didn't want to put them to death. That's why they said this. But the fact is true. They were multiplying And there were so many people that God, with a sovereign, outstretched hand, once they were in captivity and treated in difficult circumstances, God reaches down with a mighty hand. Is that not what the Exodus is all about? Track with me. God chose Abraham. God comes down. Here's the cries of the people. And here's the interesting thing. They're not crying out for God. 
When God comes down, He comes down with free and sovereign grace. Why? Because He's God. They're, not even, they're crying out because of their difficulty, but they don't cry out to God. But yet God comes down to His people. Was there something in the people where God would say, I'm coming down on your behalf? Was there? No, not at all, folks. God chooses and delivers. In 18 and 19, He moves to the wilderness of Canaan. The Bible says in the ESV, for a period of 40 years, God put up with them. Isn't that good terminology? That God put up with them in the wilderness. There is a variant reading. What that means is with the multiplicity of manuscripts we have, which are over 5,300, that date is far back within 30 years of the life of Christ, there's sometimes a variant reading. Well, we look at this and we say, put up with. That means, man, I'm doing all I can do to put up with these people. Well, the variant reading is more like a nurse. God nourished them, and not only nourished them, but cared for them like an infant. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, don't turn because I'm a little faster than you because I know where I'm headed. Listen to the word. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, 30. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Isn't God good? I mean, folks, he put up with them. Yes, he did. They deserve to be annihilated. No question about it. But he also is that, in that word, is the nourishing, uh, the nursing work of God to carry them as a father would carry his son. But God did this. God came down. Just like I delivered you out of Egypt, Deuteronomy says, I carried you in the wilderness as a father carries a son. Who's the active participant here? God is. You see that, right? God then gave them an inheritance in Canaan. If you're tracking with the text, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, He gave them their land as an inheritance. Who gave them the land? Did they earn it? Absolutely not. God gave them the land. He destroyed the enemies. What was it in those people that moved God those 40 years to nourish them and care for them? Was it their sterling behavior? Have you read the Old Testament? Have you read the examples given to us in 1 Corinthians 10 about them? Was it their outstanding worship? Moses was up on the mountain getting the very law of God. And Aaron leads them to worship a golden calf. And you know that story. It's a whole lot more graphic than that. No, uh, was it their longing to have brilliant obedience? We know better than that. Was it their longing for communion with God? Nope. They were grumbling. They were griping. And they were a complaining people. If you've gone through our new members class, we've learned two classifications of Baptists. JCMs and GCMs. You don't want to be a GCM. That means a grumpy church member. A JCM is a joyful church members. I like joyful church members. But just think about, I mean, Moses goes, uh, even Moses on behalf of the people has to beg God not to kill them because of their disobedience. But the only reason that God brought them through, spared them through those years was because of divine, sovereign, free 
grace that he gave to them. In verse 20, Paul jumps ahead for 450 years. He said, well, how do you get 450? The idea is 400 years of bondage, 40 years in the wilderness, and 10 years for conquest and settlement. And then the Bible says that God gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Now, when you scan through the judges, are you impressed? Are you as impressed as I am with the character of these judges? Some of you are thinking, I've never read the judges. I can tell. But just think about their character. Wow. And we need heroes today, right? You don't say to your kid, dare to be a Samson. Y'all never even heard dare to be a Daniel? Come on, folks. Did y'all go to Bible school? We do want to say dare to be a Daniel when we're... You need to be careful teaching moralistic stories in the Bible. However, Daniel seemed to walk with God for sure, right? But here, here we don't say dare to be a Samson. I mean, this guy, mm, not good. But what is the story of the judges? It's the story of many saviors. Not M-A-N-Y, but M-I-N-I. The people had a cycle. They disobeyed God. God would send an enemy uh, to... Uh, bring adversity against the people, what would the people do? They'd cry out for a deliverer, and God would give them a judge. What was that called? Grace! God would raise up a judge. Less than heroic people, I understand that, but many, M-I-N-I, deliverers, to come up with the hand of God upon them in order to deliver them. God did not have to do this, but he did. And judges was characterized by this verse, and every man did that which was... Right in his own eyes. What a difficult time. Awful apostasy, aggravated assault and assassination. Every aspect of it you see in the book of Judges. Was God opposed to them having a king? Wait a minute. Was he? Because Deuteronomy 18, God actually spells out what he wants his king to look like before they ever had a king. So it's not, remember, it's Judges up to Samuel. Thank God for a man like Samuel, right? Uh, just a fresh breeze for the people of Israel. And it was, however, under Samuel that God hears the people say, we want a king. The problem was not that they asked for a king. They asked for a king like the other nations. That is the problem. They wanted a king like all the nations of the world had. And the primary reason, remember, Samuel, God talks to Samuel and God says to Samuel, they have not rejected you, they've rejected me. And you know what God does? He gives them exactly what they asked for. He gives them a king, Saul, just like the ones of the world. Do you know in the Old Testament we have no understanding of how long Saul ruled? We don't even know it's 40 years. Did Paul know the Bible? Did he know history? You better believe it because Paul tells us that Saul reigned for 40 years. Years. No commentary. Nothing about this guy. Just that Saul ruled for 40 years. Remember, who was Paul named after? That's right. Even though he was a terrible king and plunged the nation of Israel into idolatry, people that grew up Jewish, they named their kid Saul because to them, hey, that was the first king. So they named him Saul. We look at Saul. I mean, at first he looks good. The Bible says the dude is tall, head and shoulders over everyone else. He's handsome. You know, a tall king's got to be better than a short one, right? <laughs> the fact is, he was even AWOL. 
at his own coronation. His hardness of heart toward God was heartbreaking. He would grab the scepter on one occasion and try to make his own sacrifice and be a priest because of his impatience. And Samuel would wag that prophet's finger in his face and said, No way, because God wants obedience more than he wants your sacrifice. And then we know that in his old age, God's not speaking to Saul anymore at all. And Saul goes over to a medium to try to channel the dead so that he can get some information. Tragedy. So he does this and lives. He's like a king from other nations. Even in the midst of all of this apostasy, God-hating acts, what does God turn around and do? Raises up David. Wow. He raises up David. He raised, you see the text? Who's acting here? God is again. He raised up David, a righteous king. Now, was David perfect? No, he wasn't, but he was a shepherd king and a man after God's own heart. Here's a man who loved God and had a heart in conformity to God. He wanted to do what God desired for him to do. That's what this text says. He desired to do the will of God. He loved him, loved God, and he loved him more than superficially. Which is what a lot of American Christians do today. We love him as long as he gives us what we want. Or so we think. And we love him superficially. But a man or woman after God's own heart is one who wants to know, more, wants to know God more than just superficially. It's somebody who wants to know him more than just a casual awareness. We see this magnified in the fact that David could have killed Saul, but he didn't. We see it magnified in the fact that he loved Jonathan with a uh, loving kindness, grace kind of love toward Jonathan. So it's always bothered me to read, David was a man after God's own heart, yet he committed the most popular sin in the entire Old Testament. Sins combined. And we think, what is it about him where God would love his heart? Look, folks, he loved God more than life. Do you? Thy loving kindness, God's love toward David was greater than life itself. And when God has a man or a woman who loves him more than life itself, who desires to know him more than superficially or casually, that's the man or woman after God's own heart. Now, let that work as a mirror in your own heart today. I mean, David could be ruthless and bloodthirsty. Couldn't even build the temple. Why? Because he had blood on his hands, right? And God would allow his son Solomon to do so. But here is a man who loved God. Now, to this point, do you think the Jews inside of the synagogue are rubbing their beards and just happy? I mean, what a great sermon. You even ended with David. Well, Jerusalem is the city of David. It's Israel's greatest king. Furthermore, there's a messianic prophecy out there that the one who is coming is going to be the son. Have y'all read y'all's Bibles? The son of David, right, whose kingdom will be forever. And they were probably hoping to hear something like this. God will bring a greater son of David in the future is what they were listening for. Well, they hear something totally different, don't they? God has brought to Israel a Savior. Jesus Christ. That's what they hear. The rabbi 
told us about the offspring of David. And that offspring has already come. It is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. A nobler Savior. A mightier Deliverer. A greater Israel. A greater King. Do you think that was a bombshell in that synagogue? You better believe it, folks. You men of Israel, God-fearers, the, God, the grand and glorious promise of the entire Old Testament has been accomplished. And His name is Jesus Christ. So He reaches this crescendo here of the punchline of His very first point. It is if He actually says this, Truly in Jesus, more than all in Him you will find. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. To the promise of Abraham, uh, to the raising up of the patriarchs, uh, to the inheritance of the land, to the bringing out of Egypt, inheritance of the land, the bringing of the judges, the kings. Jesus Christ is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is the fulfillment of the entire Bible. He is the greater. He's greater than Abraham. Because Jesus said before, Abraham was... I am. That means I existed, pre-existent, co-eternal, co-existent with the Father for all time. And so, was he greater than Abraham? You better believe it. He made Abraham. Right? And then, he, is he greater than Moses? Absolutely. Does Jesus give a better and greater exodus? You better believe he does. Jesus offers you a greater exodus than the people coming out of Egypt. He is the true Joshua who wins the inheritance for his people Conquering our enemy, the devil. He is a righteous judge and the righteous shepherd. Truly Jesus does more than the Father says He's going to do. In our regard, when we start considering who He is. Paul's going to make a digression at this point, And he's going to talk about John the Baptist. Y'all know that guy, right? Some of you who don't know your Old Testament, you're like, wow! I'm actually hearing something I know about. When we hear about John the Baptist here... Why does he go back to John's ministry? Well, those guys are steeped in the Torah. They know that the Messiah is coming. But they hear something in Malachi 4 that makes their ears perk up. And that's that Elijah is coming back. What happened to Elijah? He raptured. Right? He did. Had no death. Raptured. Well, uh, Malachi says that Elijah is coming again. Well, who comes in the spirit of Elijah? There you go. In the spirit of Elijah, it is John the Baptist who comes this way. And that's why he is speaking of it to those Messianic Jews who are hearing of the Messiah. A messenger is coming to prepare the way for the Lord. The promised Savior has come, folks, and it wasn't unannounced. He's trying to tell them this didn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, John was sitting down there in Jerusalem saying, Jesus Christ is coming. I'm not even worthy enough. That was a menial task for a servant, by the way. No noble person ever bent down and untied their sandals. And John says, I'm, a, I'm as low as you can get in comparison to this lamb who is coming. And he's telling these Jewish people that this didn't happen in a vacuum. This is literal, fulfilled prophecy. Didn't happen in a corner somewhere. The promised messenger came prior to the promise. He preached baptism of repentance for preparation of the Messiah's kingdom. What a confession. God has fulfilled everything in sending His own Son, and it is absolutely glorious. Every period of history, check this out, was preparatory for Christ coming into this world. And then we read Galatians 4.4, 4, In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, 
born of a virgin, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. God point, Paul points the first part of his sermon to the main actor in all of salvation. And that's God Almighty. And here's the deal. In every period of redemptive history, it's been to a people to show them, even when they were disobedient, unbelieving, and utterly sinful, it's the mercy of God that He saves anyone. It's the mercy of God and His grace that He ever saves anyone. The people were sinful and belligerent and recalcitrant, but could they derail God's plan? You wise theologians should know where I'm headed. Is anything going to stop His second coming? Not a single thing derailed the plan of the Son of God to be born on earth and to die for sinners. Not a single thing will derail His eternal plan to come back again either. It's not going to happen. So here, it's glorious. In every period of redemptive history, God has worked and with sinful people and accomplished His purpose. Now let's close with verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham... And those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. The message of salvation has been sent. I told you one of the key themes of Acts is the universal gospel of Jesus Christ becoming universal in experience and application. That very, look, look at those words. Because you're in that group. Look at them. The message of the gospel, salvation, has been sent to us. Oh, folks, don't miss this. What does all of this mean? You and me, to us, God has sent the message of salvation. To us, God has sent this great Savior. Is the application of this passage pretty simple and straightforward today? The gospel message has been sent to you. What in the world caused Paul to go up into Europe? Grace. Had he not, you would not have heard the gospel. I mean, I know we're looking 2,000 years from now, but folks, just think about how privileged you are to hear about Jesus when billions of people, probably a billion people, am I right on that? I'm close. In this world have never even heard the name of Jesus. But yet you're here in this church In America, today, and the message of Jesus Christ has been sent to you. You need to thank God for that song that Phil sings. You need to thank God that mercy reached you. But some of you sit in this auditorium week after week after week, and you hear the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you walk out of here without responding. Well, not to decide is to decide. Just think about it. It has been sent to you. Is it our own sinfulness? It is our own sinfulness and our own self-centeredness that disqualifies us from a claim from God. We look at Israel's history, and it was one of repeated failure, lack of regard for, lack, lack of regard for God. They were immersed in idolatry and rebellion. And you know what we want to do? Man, look at those nuts. We want to point at the Israelites and say, wicked sinners. They had all those things. They saw the Red Sea roll back like pushing a squeegee over a gym floor. They, say all, they saw all these things, yet they rejected God. What about you? You're rebellious. You're sinful. You're wicked. Everybody in this room. 
and yet God pursues you. Folks, that's called grace. It's not something in you at all that merits God saving you. As you read of their idolatry and their rebellion and their disobedience, I hope you see yourself in the mirror. Are y'all listening? Because I sure see myself in it. When you read about the Israelites' rebellion, their disobedience, their idolatry, you ought to use it like a mirror. Please look closely enough, deep enough. Stare at it for a moment. You'll see yourself. This is why we need divine grace. This is why I'm so thankful that God acts. Folks, He didn't have to do anything. He's totally, completely content within Himself. He never even had to make Adam. It's not like He was lonely or something. Like people say, God was just lonely and made mankind. Get over it. That's baloney. He made mankind for one purpose, to bring Him glory. You ever heard that before? Read the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and that's the number one thing. God made man for His glory. And you know why? God receives the most glory in saving sinners as a free gift. I just said it. Because God gets the glory for doing it. If you can work to get your salvation, guess who gets the glory? You can't do it. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. For by grace are we saved through faith. That not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There are, there are some great hymns out there. You know what? But as I read this, uh, my thoughts go to, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Uh, I tried to look it up a while ago, and I thought I would try to find David, but it has a different title. It's like, My Savior's Love is the title in the Baptist hymnal that you have. <clears throat> but what an awesome song. He took my sins and my sorrows, made them his very own, bore the burden to Calvary, and suffered and died alone. That's a good song, isn't it? When with a ransom in glory, His face I at last shall see, T'will be my song through the ages, To sing of His love for me. Right? I stand amazed in the presence. That's what this is about. It's to look at the grace of God, and for you to say, You took my sin and my sorrow. Made it your very own. That's what He did. To save you. We ought to stand amazed at that. That's why when Phil sings that song, I just can't take it. Right? It's just awesome. It's, it's amazing that I can even preach after hearing that. Good stuff. I hope you revel in that. I hope you look at Old Testament history. And every time you read it, you thank God that He would save sinners like us. And He can save you today. Right? Last time I checked, He's still in the saving business. Would you repent today of your sin and believe in Jesus only for salvation? Let's pray. Father, we stand, in the may, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how you could love us, a sinner condemned and unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful is our Savior's love for us. God, that's going to be our theme when we see you face to face. Worthy is the Lamb. You were slain for sinners. God, thank you for this first sermon that Paul gave. How you used it. We're going to see at the end of this passage how many were brought to Christ through the preaching of the word. 
God, if there's someone lost in this congregation, Father, would you save them? And Lord, for Christians, Lord, let us just magnify you, worship you for such a great salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.